Awesome. Well, good morning, guys. It's great to, uh, to be back with you as, uh, as we're working on this series we've been working through that we've been calling Grow. And let me just say that if you are a guest with us this morning, if you're just kind of jumping in, you're actually catching us in the midst of a very long series. We've been in this series for most of the summer. And really what this series is all about, the series Grow, is it's, all, it's been all about spiritual growth all about this idea of growing into spiritual maturity. And our, our hope in this series has been to try to add some clarity and to try to add some practicality uh, to which is oftentimes kind of an ambiguous topic, this idea of spiritual maturity or this idea of spiritual uh, growth. The way we've been doing this series, if you have been joining us, is we've been going through the book of Colossians, um, this incredible New Testament book of the Bible that is all about spiritual growth. And so the book of Colossians is really about the importance of and instructions and how to grow spiritually. And so we've been looking at that book, kind of processing through that for the past several weeks. And like I said, if you are a guest with us, you are catching us kind of at the end of a conversation. In fact, this week and next week are the, the final weeks of this series. We're just getting ready to wrap it up. And so you are kind of joining us at the end of a conversation if you are just jumping in. But the good news is this, is that you can go back onto our website or you can, you can uh, subscribe to our podcast and you can catch up on all of the previous installments and the conversations that we've had in this series. In fact, I'd encourage you to do that. Uh, if anything we say is interesting to you or is intriguing to you, uh, you can go back and check out all of that if you want to. But today what I want to do is I actually want to go back. We've worked our way all the way through Colossians chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. Uh, Colossians is a four-chapter book. And so what we're going to do today is I actually want to go back. I want to invite you to look at Colossians chapter 1 with me as we're looking to kind of wrap up this series in the next couple of weeks. And you'll see why I want to go back to Colossians chapter 1. But, if, but for the time being, once you grab your Bible for a second, go with me to Colossians chapter 1. That's where we're going to be planting ourselves this morning is in Colossians chapter 1. So grab your Bibles if you would and go there. If you did not bring a Bible with you or if you don't have a Bible app on your phone, um, we do have some Bibles that are provided for you. And you can turn in page 821 in those Bibles that you'll find in front of you, I think in the, in the chairs or, or beneath you. And uh, so page 821 is where we're going to find Colossians chapter 1. So go ahead and get there. And as always, let me just say that if you don't own a Bible, if you just flat out don't have one, um, you can just do me a favor and you can grab one of ours, make that a gift from us to you. We think it's really important that you have a Bible. Take that home and read it, and uh, we'd love for you to have that as a gift. So Colossians chapter 1, page uh, 821 in those Bibles. Now, as you're flipping to Colossians chapter 1, let me just give a quick review. Again, if you're just joining us, just to kind of catch you up to speed with what we've been talking about. So the whole series has been about spiritual growth, and one of the ways that we here at the Medina East Campus try to describe spiritual growth and explain it in a simple way is by looking at a graphic. And so let me show you a graphic. If you've been coming around for this whole series, you've seen this. Uh, but this is basically a graphic that is designed to try to simply explain what the spiritual growth process looks like according to the Bible. Okay, so in the Bible, the most common metaphor that's used to describe spiritual growth is the uh, human growth development analogy. So think about how a baby grows up into a child, grows up into an adolescent, and eventually grows into full maturity as an adult. Well, the Bible kind of hijacks that language, and it uses that same language to talk about spiritual growth and development. So again, this is a review for some of you, but basically, if you look at this graphic, on the far left side, you have this gray character. This gray character represents, according to the Bible, a person who is investigating Jesus. Okay, so this is a person who is not yet a Christian. Uh, they're still trying to figure out what they believe about Christ. They're investigating Jesus. Some of you uh, might identify yourself in this category. You'd say, that's me. Okay, and that's, that, so that, that's kind of that character. Well, the Bible explains that when a person embraces Jesus, okay, 
that when a person embraces the gospel, which we've talked about these things in weeks past, that there is a transformation that takes place, and that person, according to the Bible, is what the Bible calls born again. Some of you may have heard that terminology before, born again Christian. It's actually a biblical term. In John chapter 3, Jesus is talking to a dude named Nicodemus. Nicodemus says, what must I do to be saved? Jesus says, you got to be born again. And so the Bible says when a person embraces Jesus, when a person embraces the gospel, they are born into God's family. Well, once that transformation takes place, the Bible then says that a person who has just come to know Jesus Christ, a a new Christian, the Bible actually calls an infant in Christ. They are a baby in Christ. Now, that's not used in a condescending way. That's not intended to be a criticism. But it's true that if you just come to know Jesus, if you're a new Christian, the Bible would say you're a baby Christian. You're an infant Christian. And some of you might put yourself in that category today, too. You would say, yeah, just recently I gave my life to Jesus. Or I just recently, the gospel made sense to me in a way that it never made sense. And I'm really interested in spiritual things. And you would say you're a spiritual infant. The Bible would say you're a spiritual infant. And again, that's not a criticism or condescending. It's just kind of the way that that works. But here's the important thing this diagram teaches us and what the Bible teaches us is that simply embracing Jesus Christ and becoming a Christian, accepting Christ as your Savior, is not the end of Christianity. Uh, It is the beginning of it. Okay? That, that simply saying, I've accepted Jesus, and now I have my get-out-of-hell-free card, and I get to go to heaven and not hell, that is not the finish line of Christianity. That is the starting line. Because the Bible says that now, for those of us who have embraced Jesus, we're going to be spending the rest of our lives growing into maturity, spiritual maturity. And so we grow from infancy to childhood. We've talked about this in weeks past, to adolescence. And then we said last week, I thought Pastor Seth did such an awesome job helping us understand that the picture of spiritual maturity that the Bible gives us, strangely, is actually not adulthood. You would think that it would go from infancy to childhood to adolescence to adulthood, but that's not the case. Biblically speaking, the picture of spiritual maturity is not adulthood, it's parenthood. And so Pastor Seth talked about that last week, that that the picture of spiritual maturity is this idea that I am investing myself into helping other people grow spiritually, that disciples will eventually make disciples. And so this is a picture of spiritual maturity that we have in the Bible. And apparently, if you're a spiritually mature person, you have to look like Ron Burgundy. I don't know why that's the case, but that's part, that's part of the deal, I guess. But that's the idea, is that, it's that I'm giving myself... So spiritual maturity is intended, the Bible teaches us, not to simply be for me, but ultimately it's intended to be for other people to kind of help grow into others. Now, that's a quick review. We've talked about some of those things in the week past. You can check out those conversations if you want to. Let me tell you what I want to do today. What I want to do today with the rest of the time that we have is I want to look at a passage of Scripture that I think is going to help us understand very clearly and very practically what does it mean to be a spiritual parent? What does spiritual parenthood look like? Practically speaking, Let's put some flesh on it. And here's the other question I want to deal with. How do you and I, for those of us who follow Jesus, how do we take steps into becoming more spiritually mature? How do we take steps towards spiritual parenthood? How does that happen? So I want to talk about today. And the passage we're going to look at, I think, gives us a very clear and a very practical example of what spiritual parenthood looks like. So it's going to be Colossians chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 24 down to chapter 2, verse 1. So just a few verses and we're going to look at these together. So let's go ahead and read them, and then, uh, and then we'll just kind of break them down a little bit. So start off here in verse, 20, uh, verse, 20, uh, verse 24. The Apostle Paul says, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission that God gave me 
to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one that we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all of the energy that Christ so powerfully works within me. I want you to know how hard I contend for you and for all of those at Laodicea and for all of those who have not met me personally. Okay, so those are the the, the verses that we want to look at this morning. Pretty brief little passage, but also an incredibly powerful uh, little passage that we have here in the Bible. Now, we could look at a lot of different things. These these are some power-packed verses here. But what I really want you to notice in this passage is we have a very clear and very practical demonstration of what spiritual parenthood looks like. What I really want to draw your attention to in this passage with the time that we have is I want you just to notice in these short verses, okay, the, the um, radical other-centeredness of the Apostle Paul. All right, let me just say that again. I want you to notice in this passage the radical other-centeredness of the Apostle Paul. You see this in a lot of ways. Let me just show you a few. Glance down at verse 24 again with me. Notice what he says. The Apostle Paul says, now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. Okay, so just pause there for a second. Very quick little, little statement, quick little verse. But I want you to notice in this little verse, I want you to notice three things. I want you to notice the subject of this statement, the object of this statement, and the, and the action. Okay, so what is the subject of this statement? Well, the subject of this statement is the Apostle Paul. He's talking about himself. He's speaking in the first person. He says, I rejoice in what I am suffering. So the Apostle Paul is the subject. But what is the object? The object, very clearly, is the Colossians. He says, I am suffering, I am rejoicing for you. I exist for you. This is the radical other-centeredness of the Apostle Paul. And notice the action. Here's the action that we see here. He says, I am suffering, I am suffering for you. And so here we have just one small example of the radical other-centeredness of the Apostle Paul. Uh, The word suffering that's used here is actually uh, sometimes translated affliction. Here's the idea that the Apostle Paul has in his mind. The word suffering means to put oneself in a, to deliberately and willingly put oneself in a less than ideal circumstance for the betterment and for the advancement of another person. Okay, so this is, I am laying down my rights, I am laying down my luxuries, I am take, my, my comforts are taking a back seat to your advancement, to your maturity, to your betterment. So the Apostle Paul says, I am suffering for you. Some of you might know uh, who have been here for this series, the Apostle Paul's suffering at this point is that he's in prison. And so the Apostle Paul writes this letter to a church in Colo- into the region of Colossae. He writes from uh, a prison in Rome. Uh, Most commentators believe that the Apostle Paul was in prison maybe up to two years at this point. Uh, He was in prison for his faith in Jesus Christ and for his dedication to help people like the Colossians come to know and follow Jesus. So the Apostle Paul says, I am suffering for you, right? I exist for you. It's a radical other-centeredness. The Apostle Paul says, I'm suffering for you. But not just that. I want you to notice what else he says. Look with me down at verse 25. Verse 25, he says, I have become its servant. By the way, it's there. He's referring to the church of Jesus Christ. So he's like, I've become the servant of God's people, of, its, of, of it, he says. I've become its servant by the commission that God gave me to present you the word of God in its fullness. All right, again, I just want you to notice, just in this quick little verse, I want you to notice the subject. What's the subject? The subject is the same. It's the Apostle Paul. 
He says, I have become Christ's servant. God gave me a commission. He is this, he's talking about himself, first person. But notice the object. He says, all of this I do for you. I want to present to you. Again, I exist for you. I exist for his radical other-centeredness. And I want you to notice again in this sentence, what is the action? Well, he says, I've become its servant. In other words, he says, I'm serving you. So he says, not only am I suffering for you, but I'm also serving you. This word serve that the Apostle Paul uses here is actually the same word that's, that was used in the Greek language to speak of a waiter or a waitress who is, who is, a, who is a server um, like at a restaurant or who would serve the meal. And so what is this idea of serving? Well, here's what the Apostle Paul has in mind. Serving is basically saying, I'm gonna take my gifts, I'm gonna take my abilities, I'm gonna take my resources, and I'm going to take the position of humility and I'm gonna use my gifts and abilities and resources not for the sake of self-promotion, but for the sake of you. I wanna help you. And so the Apostle Paul says, man, I, I'm suffering for you. He says, I am serving you, right? And that's not it. I want you to notice one other thing that he says in here. If you glance down with me at verse 28, the Apostle Paul says in this, he says, I, he says, we want to present everyone fully mature in Christ. And then he says, to this end, I strenuously contend with all of the energy that Christ works so powerfully within me. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you. Once again, I just want you to notice what is the subject. Subject again is the Apostle Paul. He says, I am strenuously contending. I am contending for you. It's the Apostle Paul. And what is the object? Object is you, for you Colossians. I exist for you. This is the radical other-centeredness of the Apostle Paul. What's the action? The action is I am strenuously contending. He says I'm suffering, I'm serving, and I'm strenuously contending. Now that term, strenuously contending, is actually a pretty powerful little term. It's two Greek words that are smashed together. The first word, strenuous, is this idea of emptying oneself out to the point of exhaustion. All right, this, is, this is I am giving all that I have. He says I'm strenuously and then contending. Okay, contending is this word that means to fight. It actually was the same word that was used of athletes that were competing or people that would fight in a ring. He says, I am pouring everything out. I am fighting for you. And what is he fighting for? Well, he says it in here. I'm fighting to present every person mature in Christ. He says, I'm fighting for you. I'm fighting for your maturity. So the Apostle Paul says, listen, here, here's the most beautiful picture of spiritual maturity that we have. I think this is a very practical image of what spiritual parenthood is, right? I'm suffering, I'm serving, and I'm strenuously contending for the sake of another person, for, an, for the sake of another person's spiritual growth, for the sake of another person's spiritual development. This is an awesome picture of what spiritual parenthood looks like. And I, if you think about it, you guys, I, I was thinking about these three things. Isn't it true that these three terms, suffering, serving, and strenuously contending, for those of us who are parents in this room, is that not a perfect description of what parenting is really all about? Because what do we do as parents? We suffer, we serve, and we strenuously contend, right? And that might sound, I don't, I don't mean it in a negative way. I mean, we willingly do these things, but is it not true that that's what we do? We suffer, we serve, and we strenuously contend. If suffering, according to the Apostle Paul, if suffering simply means that I am putting myself willingly in less than ideal circumstances, sacrificing my rights, my privileges, and my desires for the sake of another person, that's parenting. That's parenthood. Every time uh, you get up in the middle of the night, to help satisfy the need of one, of one of your children. What are you doing? You're laying aside your comforts and, and rights and luxuries for the sake of another person's need. That's suffering, according to the Bible. Whenever you acquiesce to watch Frozen for the bajillionth time, 
or, or to watch some kid's movie at the expense of the ball game or at the expense of your favorite show. What are you doing? You are denying yourself a luxury or a privilege, right? And you are what the Bible would call suffering. You're suffering. That's a major part of parenting. When you have a teenage son or daughter and you're taking them out driving because they need to get enough hours for their learner's permit, what are you doing? I mean, seriously, what are you doing? You're suffering. You're willingly putting yourself in a far less than ideal circumstance. You're putting your life on the line, for the sake of their maturity. That's what the Bible would call suffering. So Apostle Paul says, I'm suffering for you. That's spiritual parenthood. But then he says, I'm serving you. Parenting is servanthood, isn't it? Parenting is, I am gonna take my gifts, my abilities, and my resources. I'm gonna bring those things to bear so that you have what you need. That's servanthood. That's so much of a parent. Strenuously contending. And parenthood, what are we doing? We are strenuously contending for the maturity of our children. We are pouring ourselves out to the very last drop, fighting for them that they might become fully functional uh, operating citizens of our country, right? We want them to be mature people. And that's, what, that's why we educate. That's why we discipline. That's why we provide good nutrition and we, we stress about these things because that's so much of what parenthood is really all about. You see, guys, I think what we have in this, in this, in this passage, we have a beautiful picture of what spiritual maturity looks like. And I think, I think personally, this is incredibly clarifying and this is incredibly helpful uh, that we have this as the picture of what spiritual maturity looks like. Because here's the thing. I think that for some of us, we might have a false picture of what spiritual maturity looks like. Somewhere in our thinking, we might have a false picture of what spiritual maturity really is. So for example, I think for some of us, if I was to ask you, what does a spiritually mature person look like? You might tell me it's a person who knows a lot. So a person who knows a lot about the Bible, a person who can recite scripture to you by memory, a person who understands abstract theological uh, terminology, um, a person who just has a, a kind of a, a wealth of biblical knowledge, that's what spiritual maturity looks like. Some of us might have that picture. For some of us, when, when I ask you, what does spiritual maturity look like? We might say, well, a spiritually mature person is a person who can really navigate the Christian subculture very well. Uh, they, know all, they, know, they can talk the talk. They know all the lingo. Um, they've read, they're up on all the Christian books. They know what this guy said and that guy said, and they, they've got it all down. For some of us, I think if I asked you, what does spiritual maturity look like? You would say, well, the person who's been attending church the longest, that person is the most spiritually mature that guy's been a Christian for 40 years. He never misses a Sunday. That guy's a pastor, so obviously he must be spiritually mature. And listen, none of those things are bad. All of those things are really awesome. But you know as well as I do that you can know a ton about the Bible. You can be a Christian for 40 years. And you can know the Christian subculture inside and out, and you can miss this, a lifestyle of radical others-centeredness. I am serving. I am suffering and I am strenuously contending on behalf of another person. The Bible says this is the hallmark of spiritual maturity. Other-centeredness is the stable feature of spiritual maturity, just like Jesus was so other-centered. That is the staple feature, and the inverse is true as well. The staple feature of immaturity, of childhood, is selfishness. And again, that's not a criticism. That's not intended to be condescending, but it's just true. That isn't it true? One of the staple features of, of, of childishness is selfishness. Now, you guys know this about me. I got three kids. Uh, right now, I have uh, two little boys, five and a six-year-old. And then we have a little princess, our little seven-month-old Gracie. She's awesome. We love her. And I just tell you, I love my kids. I really do. I really enjoy them. They're so fun. They bring so much joy into it. They make me laugh so hard, just the stuff they say. But I got to be honest with you. My kids, uh, aside from myself, are the most selfish people I know. 
They are really, really, really selfish people, especially my seven-month-old, Gracie. She is so selfish, man. Like, seriously, she doesn't work. She doesn't help around the house. She doesn't cook. She doesn't carry her own weight. I mean, literally, you have to carry her everywhere she goes. She's really selfish. But, but, but you guys, we're laughing because, you know, that doesn't surprise me. That doesn't bother me. That's expected. Why? Because she's a baby, right? And, and, and the staple feature of infancy and of childhood is self-centeredness. That's just true. My two little boys, they're five and six years old. They're very, very, very selfish people, right? Very, very selfish. But me and my wife, we're not always frustrated with it. Why? Because we kind of expect it. They're kids. We don't expect that they're, they're going to act like fully functional adults. Now, we don't want them to stay that way, but they're pretty selfish people. Just a quick example, really, really small one. Uh, just a, a few weeks ago, we were out in public, and, uh, and we were walking past this, this bench, this park bench, and my youngest son saw a quarter on the park bench. So he was all pumped and excited. He's like, Dad, I found a quarter. And he went and he got it, and he was all excited. And I was like, that's great, buddy. You got a quarter. That's awesome. And, and then Jess, she was like, that's wonderful. And we were just kind of like, that's neat. He found a quarter. And my oldest son, my six-year-old, can you guess what his first response was? His first response was, oh, what about me? Where's my quarter? It's not fair, right? And so, I, I, I mean, it's just immediately his first response is that he's consumed in self-centeredness. And so I, I looked at him. I said, buddy, I said, you can either be sad for you or you can be happy for your brother. I said, you can either be a selfish and say, what about me? What about me? Or you can just, you can think about another person and say, all right, Leland, you found a quarter. That's an awesome thing. You could do that. And it was funny because even as I was saying that to him, I was thinking in my mind how many times I say, what about me? And it's not fair, just not over quarters, right? Over a bunch of other stuff. And, uh, but it's, it, is a, it is a staple feature of immaturity is self-centeredness. And you guys, the same thing is true spiritually. The same thing is true spiritually. Um, if, you, if I asked you, for those of us who follow Jesus, and I, I know not everyone follows Jesus, but if I asked you, um, is your spiritual walk, is it characterized by self-centeredness primarily? If I asked you that question and you were to say, yeah, it's pretty much my, my spiritual walk, my, my connection with Jesus, my church involvement, it's pretty much just about me. I think that's a pretty good indication, a pretty good sign that there is an opportunity for growth there. This is an awesome opportunity to grow. So for example, if I was to ask you a little about your spiritual journey and, and your connection, you say, well, you know what? I come here to grace. I hear, I hear this very often. People say, I come here to grace and I love it here at grace. And I'm like, that's really cool. Tell me about that. And you're like, well, I just love it because I just want to get fed. I love it here because I can get fed. I just want to be fed. And, and we used to go to this other church and, and we were there and I just wasn't getting fed. And so we said, we got to leave because we got to go somewhere where we can get fed. And so we started coming here and we feel like we get fed. And then maybe some people are like, I don't feel like I get fed here. So I'm going to go somewhere else. I need to be fed. I just want to be fed. I need to get something out of it. Just feed me. I want to feed. I want to be fed, right? And I hear that a lot. Now, now I'm, I'm kind of mocking that, but please hear my heart in this, okay? I am not for a moment minimizing the importance and the significance of being part of a church that provides proper spiritual nourishment from the word of God. That is important. And I am not underestimating that for a moment. However, okay, if that is the summation of your spirituality and your involvement in church, if it's just feed me, feed me, feed me, and it's never how can I help serve another person? How can I help feed another person? How can I do that? I think it's a sign that there's a room for growth. I think it's a sign of imma spiritual immaturity. Because if you're constantly saying, feed me, feed me, feed me, I just need to be fed, I need to be fed, that's all it is about me being fed, you sound a lot, and, and again, this isn't a condescending thing, but you sound a lot like my seven-month-old. Because my seven-month-old little girl, she loves to eat. She loves to be fed. 
My seven-month-old little girl, she is the happiest when she is being fed, just like her daddy. She loves to eat. And so she wants to eat all the time. Just feed me, feed me. And if you're not feeding her, she'll let you know. And she'll cry about it and she'll whine about it. And listen, as a seven-month-old, that's cute, right? It's acceptable. It's accepted. But if you're a 24-year-old and that's continuing to happen, that's sad, right? That's weird. If you're, if you're 24 years old and you're like, Mom, feed me. You know, Mom, where's my binky? Where's my bottle? Mom, other things with B. You know, I don't know. And uh, I, don't, I don't know what I'm talking about. If that, but if that's what you're doing, right, then it's, it's like, man, it, God doesn't want us to stay here. He wants us to grow up in spiritual maturity. If I was to ask you about your spiritual life and you would say, yeah, it's, it, it, basically I, 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 get, you know, I, I get fed and it's kind of about this me and I just want to have a worship experience that I get a lot of, that I can personally connect with God. But it's never about, man, I want to use my gifts and my abilities that God has given me to help serve other people, to help other people grow spiritually. I think it's a sign that it's a, it's, it, it's, it's a really clear symptom that there's probably room for spiritual growth there. If you look at your prayer life, and you see that, that the bulk of your prayers revolve around you. Man, God bless me. God help me. God keep me safe. God let me get a date next Friday. God please give me this thing. God give me that. Now listen, once again, I am not at all telling you that you should stop praying for yourself. You should pray for yourself. Pray for everything. Pray in all, in every circumstance. Do that. But if it's just you, and, and there's never prayers for other people, I think that's a, a good sign that there's probably room for growth. When is the last time that you strenuously contended in prayer for the sake of another person's growth spiritually? When is the last time that you strenuously agonized in prayer for the needs of our community, the needs of our world? And I think when we look into that question, what it does a lot, I'll tell you what it does for me, it shows the great disparity between where I am and where I ought to be spiritually. It shows me the room that I have to grow, where God wants to take me into a lifestyle of radical other-centeredness. See, because what the Apostle Paul shows us in this, the picture of spiritual growth is one of radical other-centeredness. Just think about this for a minute. How crazy is this? The Apostle Paul is in prison. He's been in prison, most commentators agree, for about two years. He's been shuffled around from Jerusalem all the way to Rome into different court systems. He's been denied justice, and he's been imprisoned because of his faith in Jesus Christ. And who is the Apostle Paul thinking about? Who is he praying about? Who is he writing to? He says, I'm thinking about you. I'm not thinking about me. I'm not thinking about, he says, I am consumed. I am agonizing. I am suffering for you. I am serving you. It's this radical others-centeredness. And like I said, what it does for me is it shows me the great disparity between me and the Apostle Paul. I'm nowhere near where this guy was. What an incredible picture of spiritual maturity. Now listen, I know that even as I say this and we talk about this, I think it's important that we just kind of pause at this point in the conversation because I know that even as I say spiritual maturity looks like suffering and it looks like serving and it looks like, it looks like uh, strenuously contending, uh, that for some of us you're like, well, man, all of those things, those, all three of those words, they all have very negative connotations, like, don't they? I mean, no, like serving, suffering, strenuously contending, those sound like things that all of us purposely try to avoid, not things that we try to pursue. And so for some of you, you might be thinking, well, wait a minute now. So are you saying that spiritual maturity basically looks like a life of begrudging duty? that I just have to suffer and serve and strenuously contend because that's what God wants me to do. And so I just have to be a martyr. 
And I just have to somehow, just out of dutiful obligation and guilt, I just have to do these things and I have to lay myself down for the sake of other people. Is that what spiritual maturity looks like? It's just a life of drudgery. It's a life of just, you know, just dutiful obligation. Is that what you're saying? And let me just say real quick that if that's how you're reading this passage, then you've misunderstood the heart of Paul. Because I can tell you that the answer to that question is no. And I could tell you with that with certainty because of one little word the Apostle Paul uses in verse 24. I want you to notice what he says in verse 24 because this helps clarify so much. Look again. He says, now I rejoice. I rejoice in what I suffer for you. See, here's the amazing thing about this passage. The Apostle Paul says, yeah, I'm suffering. He says, yeah, I'm serving. He says, yeah, I'm strenuously contending. He says, but, but, but if you think that I'm doing this out of obligation and duty, and if you feel like I'm doing this because it's some sense of drudgery that I just have to, he's like, you've misunderstood me. He says, no, I rejoice. I rejoice in the fact that I get to suffer for you and the fact that I get to serve you and the fact that I strenuously contend. He says, there is joy that undergirds all of these things that I do for you. The word rejoice literally means to be excessively glad. It means to celebrate. So the apostle Paul says, yeah, I'm suffering. Yeah, I'm serving. Yeah, I'm strenuously contending. He says, but I rejoice as I do it. I'm so happy to be able to do that. The question is, how in the world is it possible that the apostle Paul can say that? How can he say, I rejoice in this, right? Is he masochistic? Is that what's going on? Is the apostle Paul like, I just love pain. I love getting punched in the face. It's my favorite thing ever. Is that what he's saying? No, that's not what he's saying. He's not masochistic. I'll tell you why it is, I believe, that the Apostle Paul can rejoice in this. And I'll tell you why it is I believe that you and I can rejoice in this as well. I think there's at least two reasons. There's probably more than that, but there's at least two. I'll just mention two of them. Here's the first one. I think the reason the Apostle Paul can rejoice in this is because he has discovered the paradoxical pathway to joy. Let me just say that again. I think the Apostle Paul has discovered the paradoxical pathway to joy. Let me kind of talk about this. This idea of the paradoxical pathway to joy, that's what I call it but it's something that the Bible teaches, this idea of the paradoxical pathway of joy. I call it paradoxical because the, the idea and the teaching that you can find joy and fulfillment and radical other-centeredness is absolutely contradictory to what our culture teaches, and it is absolutely counterintuitive to the way that we naturally want to respond to life. Let me just say that again because it's really important. I think that the teaching... That, that joy and fulfillment can be found in radical other-centeredness runs contradictory to what our culture teaches us, and it runs uh, counterintuitive to what we naturally, how we naturally tend to respond, right? We live in a culture today, and I think that all of us naturally believe somewhere inside of us that the true path to joy and fulfillment is not found in radical other-centeredness. It is found in radical self-indulgence. And so, for example, if I was to ask you, um, uh, what is the pathway to joy and happiness in this life? I think for many of us, we'd say, well, it's all found in, in, in kind of, I need to follow my dreams. I need to pursue my passions. I need to listen to my intuitions. I need, I need, to, I need to discover myself. I, I need to go through, through, through uh, a season of radical self-discovery. Uh, we are taught that happiness is found in the accumulation of things for myself, radical self-indulgence. More for me, more for me, more for me. And then if I ever feel like I'm dissatisfied, it's probably because I need bigger, I need better, I need more. It's radical self-indulgence. I just need more me time. I just gotta figure myself out. 
I just need to follow my passions. I need to follow my hearts. And that's what we're taught. We're taught that that is the way that you're going to find joy and you're going to find happiness in life. But the Bible would look and say, actually, that's not it at all. It's actually the exact opposite. It's very paradoxical. There's a paradoxical pathway to joy. And the Bible says that real joy, real fulfillment is found in Christ-centered, others-centeredness. That I exist for you. That I am serving you. I am suffering for you. And that I am strenuously contending for you. Now that doesn't, for for a lot of us, that doesn't sound like freedom. That doesn't sound like joy. But the Apostle Paul has discovered, no, 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 this is it. This is it. Now again, I think think that the analogy that works here, once again, and obviously it kind of goes with our, our graph, is parenting. And I'm sorry to keep coming back to this because I know not everyone's a parent in this room, but I think it makes a lot of sense. Isn't it true, for those of us who are parents, that while we would say that parenthood consists of suffering and strenuously contending and serving, that we would all agree that above all of those things, the one thing we would say about parenting is that it is joyful. Oh, it is joyful. It is awesome. Being a parent is exhausting, and it's tiring, and it's stinky a lot, and it, it's messy, and, it's, and, and a lot of times you're looking at yourself, so what am I doing? And, and you know, it's confusing. But above all, above all, it's awesome. It's aw- there's so much joy that can be found. And I was reminded of this. I was talking to my grandpa this week. My grandpa's 87 years old. And I got a chance to visit with him and my grandma this week. And we were sitting down and um, I had this cool opportunity. It was just me and my grandpa. I kind of had him to myself. And I really love, my, I respect my grandpa a lot. He's a great man. And uh, he, he's left an awesome legacy for his family. I love him. And I was sitting down. And I, I realized I had a unique opportunity to talk with him. And so I thought, man, I'm going to try to get some wisdom since I'm with him, you know. And so I said, I said, you know, Grandpa, I said, man, you're 87 years old. I said, that's awesome. I said, and, and I said, when you look back at your life, your whole life, I said, up to this point, I said, what were the most fulfilling years? What were the best years of your life? And you know what he said without hesitation? You know what he said? He said, when the kids were little. When the kids were little. And I actually remember thinking to myself, that's crazy because I, I know enough about my grandpa to know what his life was like when the kids were little. And my grandma and grandpa, they had seven kids, a lot of kids. And, and I know that when his kids were little, uh, he was pulling two full-time jobs. He was a roofer, and then he and his father were trying to build uh, their own business. They were building a roofing supply company. So he was working two full-time jobs. He was building a house. Uh, for his kids, for his family. And he was doing all of that while raising seven little kids. And see, my grandpa went on. He, he was very successful um, in, his, uh, in his roofing supply business. He did a lot of great things. He got to experience a lot of wonderful things in life, got to travel a whole bunch. And yet he would look back and he said, the most fulfilling time of my life, the best time of my life was during that season. And I know that in that season, he was suffering, and I know that he was serving, and I know that he was strenuously contending for the sake of his family and the sake of his kids, and yet he said that was the most fulfilling time in my life. And you guys, I think the same thing is true spiritually. I think if I was to ask many of you in this room, tell me about the time that you, sp- you felt the most spiritually fulfilled, the most spiritually satisfied, the most spiritually vibrant. Tell me about that time. I think most of us in this room would say it was a time of my life when I was using my gifts and I was using my abilities and I was using my time and my treasure and my resources for the sake of serving somebody else. It was that time I worked at that camp and I gave my life, I was exhausted and I was tired, but it was awesome. It's the time I went on that missions trip and I, I was sleeping on the ground and it was uncomfortable and I was, I was uncomfortable in my relation. I didn't really understand it, but I was pouring myself out for the sake of other people and there was so much joy that was found in that. It was that time that I served at that thing or I was in that church and I was giving my life for that. See, I think that that's the, the case. 
There's a paradoxical pathway to joy. I think that this is why Jesus, this is what Jesus meant in Matthew 16, verse 25, when he said, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. See what Jesus says? He says, look, if you're trying to find your life, if you're trying to pursue satisfaction and fulfillment in this life through radical self-indulgence, you are going to lose your life. You're not gonna find it there. You wanna find it though? He says, lose it. Give it away. Suffer, serve, strenuously content for somebody else. You're gonna find joy. You're gonna find fulfillment in a way you never have before. That sounds so paradoxical. For some of, some of you right now, you are stuck spiritually. And maybe it's been that way for a long time. But in your mind, somewhere you believe that the way out is to continue to indulge yourself spiritually. I just gotta figure myself out. I just need more me time. I just gotta get myself right before I can help serve other people. It's not the right way. Paradoxical. It's found in giving yourself to other people. That's where it's found. So I think the Apostle Paul found the paradoxical pathway to joy, but I think he also found something else too. And this is, I'll end with this one. I think the Apostle Paul discovered the joy, the joy of co-laboring with Jesus. I think the reason the Apostle Paul can say, I rejoice in what I suffer for you. I rejoice that I get to serve you. I rejoice that I am strenuously contending you is because I think that the Apostle Paul discovered the incredible joy that is found in co-laboring with Jesus. In fact, I know that that's true. See, for the Apostle Paul, whenever he had an opportunity to suffer or had an opportunity to serve or had an opportunity to strenuously contend for somebody else, the Apostle Paul latched on to that because he knew that this was an opportunity that he could know Jesus better and become like Jesus more. There was a co-laboring that was done with that because think about this for a minute. What is it that Jesus Christ has done for us? Just for, for those of us who follow Jesus, what do we believe Jesus Christ has done for us? Well, think about it. Jesus Christ suffered for us, didn't he? Suffering is, I am laying aside my luxuries and my rights and my privileges, and I, I am putting those things to the side to put myself in less than ideal circumstances for the betterment of another person. Oh, well, that's the cross. That's the incarnation. That's when Jesus became a man. The Bible says he left the right hand of God. He humbled himself and he became a human. He took on flesh. Uh, that, that is a picture of suffering. The cross is a picture of suffering and all of that. We, we serve a God. We serve a Jesus. We serve a Christ who suffered for us. He suffered, but he didn't just stop there. Christ just didn't suffer for us, you guys. The Bible says he also served us. If the Apostle Paul says that serving is all about using my gifts and abilities and resources and taking the position of a servant, humbling myself, and using my gifts and abilities and resources for the sake of another person, it's exactly what Jesus did. The Bible says that his righteousness has been given to us. He has imputed his righteousness onto us. The Bible says that Christ's inheritance, what belongs to him, has been given to those of us who follow him. He's given us his spirit. He's given us his gifts. He has, he has taken all of his resources and he has brought them to bear on us. So he suffered for us, but now he serves us. And he didn't just serve us. He, strenuous, he strenuously contended for us. Jesus, cross, Jesus Christ fought a fight that we could not fight for ourselves on the cross to give us and to secure a victory that we couldn't secure for ourselves. He strenuously contended for us. The apostle Paul says, I rejoice when I get to do these things because when I do these things, I get to be more like Jesus. I get to join him in his sufferings. I get to co-labor with him. I think this is what the apostle Paul means 
in the book of Philippians when he says this. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He says there's nothing better than knowing Jesus. It's the best thing ever. And then he says, I want, I want to know Christ. You can almost hear it in his voice. I just want to know Jesus. He says, yeah, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. Look at this. And participation in his sufferings. He says, I want to know Christ all the way. I don't just want to know the glory of the resurrection. I also want to know the pain of the suffering of Christ because I want to be like him. And that's what spiritual maturity is anyway. It's looking more and more like Jesus every day. And so whenever you and I have an opportunity to suffer for the sake of another person's spiritual growth, to serve for the sake of another person's spiritual growth, and to strenuously contend for the sake of another person's spiritual growth, we get to be like Jesus. And we get to experience something that he did. That's what God wants to grow us into. That's the picture of spiritual maturity that God gives us. I'm gonna ask the band to come up. And as they do, I wanna end with just one final challenge And this is really just for those of us who follow Jesus in this room. I know not everyone follows Jesus. And so if you're still investigating Christ, I hope you would take some of the things that we talk about. You know, the fact that we serve a God who suffered and served and strenuously contended for us. There is no other religion that teaches a God who does those things. And consider that. But for those of us who follow Jesus, here's my one singular challenge to you. My one challenge to you. So I want to challenge you, regardless where you are in your spiritual growth process, whether you're a baby in Christ or whether you're a a child in Christ or wherever you might be, here's my challenge. My challenge is that you would take one step, that's it, one step towards others-centeredness in your spiritual walk. That's my challenge. So what does that mean? Well, for some of you, it means this. For some of you, maybe it's as simple as this, where you would say, I commit to praying this week every day for one person, for, for someone besides myself, for their spiritual growth. And maybe you're a person, you would say, my, my prayer life, if, if, if there is a prayer life, you're like, my prayer life is all about me. God help me, protect me. You know, don't stop praying for yourself. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying maybe, maybe for you, one step towards other-centeredness is I'm gonna start praying for one other person, for their growth, for their development, for them to know Jesus, to follow Jesus, maybe a coworker, maybe a friend, maybe a family member. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus on somebody else in my prayers. Maybe it's as simple as that. You say that. Maybe it's this. Maybe for you, it's that you say, you know what? I'm going to go from being a passive attender of church to an active attender or to an active participant in these things. For some of you right now, maybe this is the summary of your spiritual life. Maybe you, you come in, you're connected to Medina East Campus, which is awesome, and you come in late. And you slip in and you get fed and then you slip out. You're the ninja. We talk about the ninja all the time, right? And so you come in and you, you kind of do your ninja thing. You hide behind the pole. No one sees you. You get your cup of coffee and then, you know, you just like, I don't know what I'm doing here. But that's what you do. You do all those things and you slip in, you slip out. And that's the summation of your spiritual walk. What if you said, I'm going to make a move. And I'm going, I'm going to denounce my ninja ways. And I am going to purposely decide that instead of passively attending, I'm going to prayerfully come. And so on my way, I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask God, God, would you give me someone to talk to? And I'm going to stick or I'm going to linger afterwards to try to talk to someone I've never talked to before, not for my sake, but for their sake. Because maybe God wants to use me to encourage somebody. Maybe God can use me to make someone feel welcome. Maybe God can use me in those ways. And so I'm, I'm not going to be passive. I'm going to be active as I engage in, in, in weekend services or I engage in life group. Maybe for you it's this. Maybe, maybe you say, you know what, at work or at school, I'm going to purposely reach out to someone and I'm going to, I'm going to love that person. 
in the name of Jesus Christ. And so maybe there's that, that coworker that, that everyone's annoyed with and, and nobody likes and, and is hard to be around. Maybe say, you know what, this week, I'm gonna invite that person out to lunch. I'm gonna try to strike up a friendship because it, radical other-centeredness is where God wants us to be. Maybe it's that person at your high school that, that is always saying socially awkward things and everyone feels weird around and everyone secretly makes fun of. Maybe for you, you're like, no, I wanna befriend that person because because that's what Jesus would want me to do. It's radical others centeredness. Maybe for you, it, it's saying, I wanna start using my gifts and abilities that God has given me to serve. And God has given you gifts and God has given you spiritual abilities and, you, and right now you're sitting on those things. You're not allowing God to use those for the betterment and the growth of other people. Maybe it's, it's time to say, you know what? I'm gonna get up, I'm gonna do something. This can't just be about me. It can't just be about me because that's not where God wants us to stay. He wants us to grow into radical other centeredness. And so maybe for you, you're like, I'm gonna go to intro. I'm gonna go to boot camp. I'm gonna start serving. I'm start using my spiritual gift to contribute to help other people grow spiritually. And it's paradoxical, but it's a pathway to joy. Maybe for some of you, it's time to start discipling somebody. It's time to say, you know what? I'm gonna get together with someone. I'm gonna meet with them once a week. We're gonna read the Bible together. We're gonna do something to help focus on the growth of another person. Listen, I know for some of you, even as I'm saying this, you might be saying, that's all fine and good. I'm just not ready for that. I just, you know, I need some more time. I need to get a little more mature before I start thinking about other people. But here's the irony of it. If you're waiting to become mature to start helping other people, um, you're actually forfeiting the means by which God wants you to grow in maturity. Oftentimes, the way to become more spiritually mature is to start giving away to other people. And as you begin to do that, God will continue to help you grow. I'll close with this quote and then we'll pray. Timothy Keller said in his fantastic little book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, it's a short read. I'd encourage everyone to read it. He said this, he said, the essence of gospel humility, and for the sake of our conversation, I would add the essence of gospel maturity is not thinking more of myself or less of myself. It's thinking of myself less. Radical others-centeredness is the means by which we grow. Let's pray. Well, Lord, I just want to say thank you for your radical other-centeredness. We serve a God who is a giver. Jesus, you gave. You gave your life. You gave, you gave um, your example. Uh, God, you gave all of your righteousness, all of your resources, all that you had, you gave for us. And God, I know that you're a giver. You are a giver. But God, you don't just want your children to be takers. You want, you want us to take and to receive your gifts, but you want us to be like you. You want us to be givers like you're a giver, to, to co-labor with you, participate in the things that, uh, that are of your heart. And so, Father, I pray that uh, for those of us who follow you in this room, or that you would paint a picture in our hearts of what it looks like to live a lifestyle of radical other-centeredness. It's paradoxical, God. I know for many of us, we, we, we tend to believe that uh, real joy and fulfillment is found in radical self-indulgence, but that is a lie. It's not true. Uh, if we live a life of radical self-indulgence, we'll become monsters. We'll become self-centered monsters. Father, when we learn to live a life of radical other-centeredness, you make us beautiful people beautiful people with beautiful hearts. And so God, I pray that uh, you would help us to look more and more like you. I pray that you would help uh, those of us in this room, God, who, who are just really taking this to heart. I pray that you would give us the boldness to obey you. Give us courage to take a step out. It's a step of faith to think about other people. It really is. And so I pray you give us courage. Endow us with courage to be able to, to think outwardly, to think of others. So God, just thanks for uh, the example that you've given us through Jesus Christ. Thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul.
who strenuously contends with all of your energy that works in him to present every man mature in Christ. God, let those words be said true of us too. And we ask these things in Jesus' name.